This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Cite, which is a new tool that helps researchers quickly see how a research paper has been cited and if it's been supported or disputed by subsequent research. Instead of just a list of titles, Cite shows you an excerpt of text from each citing article so you can easily see what each citing paper says, which is a huge time saver when evaluating the veracity of citations. You can even check all the references from a single paper in just one go. As an Everything Hurts listener, you can get 30% off their premium package for 12 months, which gives you access to unlimited reports and reference checks. Go to site.ai, that's S-C-I-T-E dot A-I, and use the coupon code HURTS to claim this offer. For more details, check out our show notes. You see cases sometimes where there will be a paper published making some claim, supposedly supporting some claim. It's retracted, and then you see scientists continue to cite it and treat it as accurate for often years, years after. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Heathers from Cypherskin and a very special guest, Kaylin O'Connor, who is an Associate Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science at University of California, Irvine. Kaylin, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Now, one thing that a lot of people or some people within the psychological sciences and the biological sciences have gotten really interested in uh, over the past few years is the philosophy of science. And this is really interesting because I never got taught this within undergrad. I don't know about you, James, but for me, this wasn't really covered. But all of a sudden, this is becoming really popular. Why would why, why should biological or people within the biological sciences or the, the psychological sciences care about the philosophy of science? Well, number one, it's just fun. But number two, I think studying philosophy of science does tend to improve the actual practice that scientists engage in. So philosophers of science do different things, but one main thing is what you might think of meta science. So thinking about how does science work? How do we learn things via the tools we use in science? What evidence supports what kind of hypotheses in what ways? How does the fact that scientists are structured into communities and the fact that scientists are human and that they're raised in certain cultures, how does all of that influence the way science is done? And I think as a scientist, if you have a better grasp of those processes, you can look at your own practices and try to think about, well, what can I be doing better? What ways can I be controlling for my own biases? All sorts of questions like this. Yeah. You know, the, the, I, I never I never got a formal introduction to the philosophy of science. There was one kind of omnibus history and philosophy and some old stuff that we thought was relevant and some other, like, it, it, was, it was a kind of a... Uh, what's that soup with licorice? God damn cat. Uh, what's that soup where they throw everything in all at the same time? I can never remember. It was, it was that. It was one single subject as an undergraduate and it was the kind of soup song of everything that was, uh, uh, everything that's not empirical and we throw it all in a bucket. And it was, it was one of those subjects where it was just about, just about to get interesting and then they immediately moved on to something else. Uh, and I saw a presentation at uh, Amos last year from Rachel Brown, who is a philosopher of science uh, at Australian National University. And two things were re- really apparent. One, I didn't know anything about this. And two, she was exactly right uh, that 
more attention needed to be paid to the kind of core assumptions that go behind everything we do, or I should say I did. And what was really disappointing, I didn't last long enough as a scientist to actually make any good use of that. Um, <laughs> and, now, and now I've quit. Um, well, for a, for a given value of quit. Um, it is, it's, it's one of those huge holes in everyone's collective education because it, it feels challenging. Um, I wanted to dig into something that you just said. Excuse me, rambling. It's a long day. Everything's very weird. Um, do you think that there is a better place for this and a more receptive audience in the kind of meta-scientific discipline of people who are regular empirical scientists than elsewhere? Do I think there's a more receptive audience in what? In where? For, for, for empirical meta-scientists. I mean, I was a meta-scientist for a given value of that for ages, and I spent most of my time beating numbers to death. But at the same, at the same time, why you would do that, the kind of environment from which the numbers that needed to be beaten to death could be derived, um, I feel like I, I, I never really knew enough about it. Have you, when, when, when you uh, are, are trying to uh, collaborate with people who are scientists proper, um, meta scientists or biologists? What's 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 the flavor? For me personally, um, sure. Well, I mean, sort of doesn't necessarily matter right now. I'm working with someone who's well. So this paper was with someone who's interdisciplinary between cognitive science, modeling, um, but does a lot of meta science work. A lot of people in philosophy of science just do collaborative work with people in the sciences and, you know, biology or physics or economics or wherever. Now that um, the, the paper that you're referring to was um, was was a preprint which uh, which came out about a week ago, and this was um, posed a really interesting question, and that is why do bad methods persist in some academic disciplines even when they have clearly been rejected in others? Can you tell us a bit more about the background of that and you so you're, you're collaborating with paul on this particular paper but what, what's the general gist of, of what you uh of what you found or what, what you reported in this preprint yeah so paul and i first talked about writing this paper actually at a conference called the meta science conference which brought together a bunch of people in meta science from different disciplines and also philosophers of science i mean it's also always a little funny for us because people keep being like oh, it's an emerging idea. We'll study how science works. And in my discipline, we're like, oh, well, I'm so glad someone finally had that idea. Uh, so we were at this conference um, and he had an initial idea, which was to think about contact between different academic disciplines as similar to contact between different cultural groups. So there's this really interesting work in cultural evolutionary theory by Boyd and Richardson, where it looks at if you have a bunch of different groups of people and they use different cultural variants, can you get spread of good cultural variants between them when they contact each other? 
So he was interested in that model and thinking about, well, could we get the same thing in science? And in particular, could we get the spread of good methodology via contact between different scientific disciplines? So that was the kind of first core idea that we started with. And then from there, um, you know, we did a lot of work to kind of build a model thinking about, well, why doesn't that just happen automatically all the time? You would think uh, scientists are trying to use the best methods available. Um, the goal of science is supposed to be to seek truth, to gather good evidence. And so why do you have all these cases where you can have two disciplines and one is using a really good method and one might still be using a poor method and you fail mm -hmm. to see the good ones spreading? So that was the first kind of model we built thinking about that. And we looked at a couple other recent models that had been built, one by um, a team led by George Akerlof, uh, and thought about that. And especially we thought about features related to, okay, wh what about when you have a lack of competence to assess new methods? And what about when you have biases in your own discipline that bias you towards the methods you already use? So we built a model showing that when those features are in play, you can have disciplines that just never adopt better methods, even if some people are using them and are familiar with them. And from there, we asked, okay, well, what if we then have multiple disciplines that are interacting with each other, and in particular, where members of one can give credit to members of the other, so they can cite people from a different discipline, or they can invite those people to come to a conference, or invite them to uh, work with them on a grant, things like that. So people can get attention, academic credit, by using disciplines that might not be standard in their own field, but might be standard in another field. And what we found is that when we start including that kind of feature in our models, the good methods can spread even when they weren't spreading before, because you have, you know, people in a field who are using good methods, suddenly getting attention from the outside, getting credit, and then others picking up the good methods that they're using. Mm. I really like this approach because quite often a lot of these papers within, within meta science pick, pick the holes within what's, what's wrong with the particular field. And, but what you've done is you, you've, you've noticed, of course, there are, there are bad things that are happening, but you've also offered a solution and you've modeled a potential solution there, which I think, which I think is really cool. Um, and w within the paper, you use the example of uh, a magnitude based inference, um, which, um, has become very popular within the sports sciences. I, I think um, when we spoke in an episode, um, I think it was episode 90, I think there was maybe two papers outside the field which had used it, but the vast majority um, was, <laughs> was was within the sports sciences. So, what I, I, in that context, what, what did you learn about how these, how these ideas sort of, when it comes to biases, stay within a particular field versus how these things actually, um, like how these ideas kind of transfer between fields. Yeah, so this case, I mean, first of all, I should just say that Christia Schwanden is this journalist who did all this work to look into this case and wrote all these articles about it. And it was really useful for someone who often draws on cases for the history of science, because you don't usually have things like quotes from different scientists about why they're doing different things or what they saw someone do at a conference. So having a journalist work on this was so helpful. But basically what seems to have happened in that discipline is um, sometime, I think it was in around 2005, uh, <clears throat> this new method was introduced in a paper um, by this collaborative pair 
called magnitude-based inference a statistical method. It was meant to supplant normal frequentist statistical methods. And the basic gist is something like you look at the potential benefits and the potential harms of some intervention in sports science, and then you ask, okay, well, do the benefits outweigh the harm? And then if so, you call it, I can't remember the language they use, but like a worthwhile practice or a significant practice. Um, Now, it was noted pretty early by statisticians that there was a lot, it was basically an incoherent statistical method. Um, It has high false positive rates. The false positive rate changes based on the size of the sample you're using, which is not normal for frequentist statistics. And when you have small samples, which is what you tend to have in sports science, you get even higher false positive rates. So all of this was pretty problematic. Nonetheless, it spread in sports science. And it seems to be because number one, the people using it, and this is typical across many scientists. I'm not dunking on sports scientists. <laughs> oh no, you you can you can do that here. <laughs> we're not very competent to assess the statistics being used. So in fact, they weren't even given information about how this method really worked. It wasn't like um, the original authors laid out standard equations to show, well, here's how the statistics work. They made Excel spreadsheets where you would just sort of put in the numbers for your study, and then you'd get out uh, the magnitude-based inference kind of stats from those Excel spreadsheets. So it was easy to use. Um, the people using it didn't really know how it was working or how it wasn't working. <laughs> um, it was being promoted by... Uh, very prominent sports scientists within the field. They were suggesting at conferences, well, you should use this, you should try our new method. It also seems to maybe have spread because it allowed people to publish in cases where they wouldn't have been able to with frequentist methods because they didn't actually have a statistically significant result. So all of this kind of led it to spread. And then you had the situation where a bunch of people were using it and when they'd be refereeing papers that use magnitude-based inference, they wouldn't see any problem with that, right? So they'd be perfectly happy to accept a paper using this method that they themselves have used and their peers have used, despite the fact that statisticians outside the discipline have said, this is an incoherent method. It just doesn't do what it says it's supposed to do. I remember um, Kristen uh, Sonani uh, came on uh, on this show back in the day. Um and she talked about it, and uh, she said at one point, "This method is a. Uh, it will." They, they were quite proud of the fact that it would reduce type one and type two error simultaneously. Yeah, they they both get smaller. Um, and I laughed a lot, and then months later, found out that I got into trouble for laughing, um, and that someone had interpreted that as as arrant mockery rather than the. Uh, simply being surprised to hear that um well i know if you can do one minus a thing uh it's it's pretty easy to work out why that's pretty funny um and it it feels like a good example in retrospect of this of what might really be framed as a culture clash i mean to to, to us that seemed like a, a bit of a giggle and for people who it's, it's dead serious, they were, they were mortally offended that that uh, that humour had taken place in that context at all. Um, and I, at that point in time, I'd never read a paper that used it. It was just it's described out of context by a statistician who I know, and it seems funny. Um, but 
But that was obviously not interpreted as criticism or pause for reflection. It was more sort of, oh, why would you, why would you mock us, you horrible man? Um, I really wasn't trying to. Uh. Well, based on the work of um, Kristen, especially, I would say the most, and some other statisticians, it seems like a number of people in sports science have now taken a turn against the method. So one of their main journals has said they won't publish any more papers that use MBI. And then there have been various groups of people who have come together, sometimes driven by like younger people in the field, to say, well, we don't think we should be using this anymore. We should reject this methodology. We should, you know, stop with it. But I take it that um, part of what was kind of sociologically interesting here is that the original producers of the method, so one of them was Alan um, Batterham, uh, kept very aggressively responding to any attacks on it and aggressively defending it. And so, for example, attacked work by Kristen Sainani and others showing that there were problems with it and kept kind of, in a way, muddying the water about the criticism of MBI. Uh, and so I, I'm not surprised that you had that kind of reaction. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, no one, no one tells you at the time. Uh, I think since someone told us a couple of months later, Dan, it's not we don't really we don't really keep up with it. It's it's weird to think though that you know there's a, there's a separate culture of of people who have not only heard about that but care in in the first place. We, we often assume that uh, n none of this will actually be noticed, but yeah, there's a there's an undercurrent of people out there taking it all very seriously. Um, that that has certainly happened to me in a in a meta scientific context where, where someone someone will come back strongly with uh, uh often often it seems sufficient merely to have a tone and a response and not for the response to actually contain content uh valid points mathematics that isn't risible and that 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 a lot of the time to like keep keep the walls up around an idea that really has uh, central weaknesses, that is often enough. Um, I, I, I wonder if you've ever read uh, a, a chain of uh, journal article, response to journal article, response to that response, and then final response, where everything just sort of, by the end, it, it devolves entirely into, okay, well, the, the central point is long gone, and it's just like two old drunks arguing in a car park. Um, a, a, a lot of it seems to exist purely for the the kind of uh, if if it exists basically as a social object, it's like oh, it's absolutely worth pushing back against. the 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 content isn't so important. Um, I mean, it's it's easy to see why people would bother um, because it, it looks good. <laughs> Have I How seen this? this? I am a philosopher, after all. We'll just point that out. <laughs> In terms of, um, I mean, obviously this isn't the first time this has happened in the history of science. And the first thing that I think of when it comes to, well, it, it seems like they're cleaning house. And obviously some journals have banned the method and a lot of researchers going, we're not going to use this. And the first thing you think of is, well, it's the internet. People have found out very quickly um, that, that this isn't the way to go and they're changing their practices. Have there been examples of the past of similar stuff happening? And just, just did, in the past, did it just happen slow, slower? Did people talk at conferences? Did, was, was it really slow, you know, back, back and forth with journal articles? What sort of parallels are there with these changes of research practices in, in the past in terms of the history of science? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what we're talking about is at least partially related to this super foundational work of Thomas Kuhn on the workings of science and the philosophy of science. So for people who aren't familiar, he's the one who introduced the notion of a paradigm in science and the idea that um, science progresses one funeral at a time, which is (laughs) this phrase people uh, will kind of pull out. So, you know, his notion was like, you get these paradigms, which are sets of guiding principles and practices and experimental um, methods and things like that. And you, you know, work within a paradigm, you kind of expand it and expand it. And then when there are enough problems, you move to a new paradigm. So this was this kind of Kuhnian idea. This is somewhat related to what we're talking about, because part of why he thought you had these paradigms persist for a long time and then finally break down and change is this notion related to bias for your own methods and the things that you believe and the things that your team is doing. And that kind of self-preferential bias is the sort of thing that's driving uh, the phenomenon that we're talking about in our models, where you have people continuing to use a method, even though there's a better alternative available. Of course, we don't have to latch on to everything that Kuhn said to say, well, that we can see kind of a similar process happening in modern scientific communities where you have often methods that are very useful across communities and could spread widely, but don't necessarily do so for similar reasons. Um, As far as historical cases, we talk about this briefly in the paper. MBI was, as I said, this great case because we had all this information, you know, gathered by an actual journalist who could document why people were adopting this method, why it was spreading, different things that people were saying about the method within their discipline and people who were observing it nearby that they were saying about it. So she made it very easy to sort of see what are the functional things leading to the spread and persistence of MBI, and then eventually now to those who are trying to get rid of it. Um, It's harder to see that in most disciplines, you don't necessarily know why people continue to use a bad method or why they adopted it in the first place. But we talk about some other examples that we think probably fit the bill at least a little bit. So we talk about some of the methods in social psychology that have recently come under fire, things like the use of small sample size, for example, is probably something that everyone was doing because they can get away with it because when they're publishing their papers, referees are allowing them to do that um, because everybody wants, it's very easy, everyone wants to use small sample sizes. Uh, We also talk a little bit about evolutionary psychology, where arguably the norms within that discipline for what counts as a narrative that's supported by evidence are different, I would say, lower than norms in related disciplines looking at the evolution of human psychology and mind. Um, And there seems to be some real uh, stabilizing of those methods of using these sort of speculative evolutionary narratives within evolutionary psychology because they review each other's papers. And then you do see kind of continual pressure from nearby disciplines to reform or to change those methods. I think that really speaks to the importance of multidisciplinary journals, because when you're submitting to these multidisciplinary journals, then you have people reviewing papers from different fields and they go, hang on a minute, 
you, you can't do that or you, you can't use that approach. Whereas if um, people are viewing within within these smaller fields, people are like, this is my method, of, of course. This is great. This is what I do all the time. But once you submit to, to, those, to those other places, then um, I think that's going to be um, – that's, that's, that's really going to – going to improve papers and i think a lot of people sort of go oh, these multidisciplinary journals you know it's just they they, they yeah p- p- people like to to, to to criticize them but but i haven't actually considered that one of their strengths is the fact that reviewers from from different disciplines are actually um uh, looking at these papers and can 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 take a really good look at the methods that, that, that are being used yeah i think that kind of journal is important also situations where if you're an editor, you can have some reviewers within your discipline. Of course, that's important. But if there's some new methodology being used, drawing on people who are really familiar with that methodology, wherever they may be located is a really good idea because they can give you feedback that might not be available within your discipline. And that might be a really good thing. In this episode with Kaylin O'Connor, we're talking about how errors and discredited research approaches can propagate in science. The research literature is huge, so it can be hard keeping track of which papers have been retracted or whether the results from a particular paper have been disputed by subsequent research. Sure, you can check each paper that you're citing to see if it's been retracted and read every paper that cited a particular paper you're citing, but that takes a lot of time, which most of us don't have. Especially me, with two kids under three. With Site.ai, you can get this information with just a few clicks. You can enter in an individual study or a list of studies, and Site.ai can tell you whether any of these papers have been retracted. You can also get a summary of the types of citations that a paper has received, which are classified as either supporting, disputing, or mentioning via a machine learning classification tool. You can even see an excerpt of where a paper was cited, just to double-check the classification. You can take Site.ai for a spin for free, which will give you access to five individual reports and two reference list checks a month. But if you want access to unlimited reports and reference checks, Everything Hurts listeners get 30% off the premium plan. Just use the coupon code HERTS, H-E-R-T-Z. To claim this, go to Site.ai, that's S-C-I-T-E dot A-I. For more details about this offer, check out the show notes. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. For this episode, we are speaking with Kaylin O'Connor. And uh, Kaylin, you recently co-authored a, a very timely book called The Misinformation Age, which is about the social dynamics of alternative facts. And this was published in 2018. So, the 2016 US election had happened. Brexit had already happened. And, and to a degree, I mean, misinformation has kind of been around since the printing press. But at the time that you wrote the book, did you foresee the complete shit show that we're in right now? No, we didn't. Um, in fact, so my co-author is Jim Weatherall, who's here at UC Irvine with me. We wrote the book really quickly. We wanted to get it out before the 2018 election in the US, but it wasn't actually published until early 2019 because we were thinking, well, we want to make sure we get it out while this topic is still relevant. <laughs> oh. And the world came through for you. 
oh, it's like really depressing to be like, well, it's great for me that my work continues to be so relevant. My work on how everything's a mess. Um, I, I anticipated misinformation as a phenomena continuing. I guess I thought probably within four years, we would have gotten further along the path of like controlling and fighting misinformation. Uh, and that, that obviously has turned out to be just completely wrong. <laughs> it's just, I, 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 heard, I heard a podcast that you were on a few weeks ago and uh, you, you raised something really interesting in that we, when sort of the internet was kind of um, developing, people would think, oh, m- misinformation, Pe- people, people have access to, to information everywhere so people can access the facts and th- th- this, this whole idea of misinformation is going to go away now that the internet is here and we have Wikipedia and have all, all these sources. But, um, of course, it, 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 it's, it's the, it's the complete opposite. And, and you would think within academia, um, as academics and as scientists, we have access or most of us have access to, um, all these ideas and all these methods. And we're, we're meant to be the smart ones. Yet a lot of people <laughs> still are persisting with, with misinformation. And, um, and, and poor methodology. I was wondering, what sort of parallels do you see between misinformation spreading within the public sphere, like, like we're seeing right now, versus misinformation spreading within the academic sphere? Is there a lot of similarities or, or, or any differences between the two? Well, I would say, I mean, sometimes there are cases where you see kind of similar processes, but generally the way I think about the kind of spread of false belief or you know, persistence of false belief in science, that it is usually kind of a different process from what you're seeing on more popular media. Um, And so what Jim and I do, and I've done with other collaborators, uh, is build models to try to understand and think about the spread of belief. And usually we would use different models thinking about scientific communities and scientific beliefs than we would to think about, you know, rumors or misleading memes on Twitter. Um, And the reason is that I think more often in scientific communities, you see people adhering to norms where you have to support your beliefs with evidence. So you see people tending to share evidence more and then to use that evidence to either make arguments or change or update their beliefs. Whereas in you know, more popular spheres. Sometimes people are sharing pieces of evidence with each other to convince each other of things, but it's also a lot of sharing of just like statements of fact. Did you hear that? Blah, 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 blah. Did you hear that Pompeo said this? Or, uh, (laughs) sorry, fresh in my mind, Uh, (laughs) whatever it is. Um, And you want to model those different ways because in the former case, you want to model a process whereby people are sort of incorporating evidence into the beliefs they already have. And in the latter case, you want to model it more as just taking up beliefs that you see, not 100% of the time, but maybe some percentage of the time. So it doesn't matter within science. I mean, p- p- people are citing stuff, but they're citing stuff which is which is incorrect, such, such as the case as MBI. Yeah. Okay. It's complicated because you do sometimes see these situations in science that look a lot like popular media. I actually, so I have a paper on retraction and the retraction of scientific papers and its failure that talks about this. Um, so for example, you see cases sometimes where there will be a paper published making some claim, supposedly supporting some claim. It's retracted, and then you see scientists continue to cite it and treat it as accurate 
for often years, years after yeah. it's been retracted. Yep. And sometimes at the same rate as before it was retracted. So people have done a lot of work to study this and have kind of uh, realized again and again, retraction doesn't quite work the way it ought to. And so that is a case that looks a lot like the spreading of rumors in the popular realm or the spreading of disinformation in the popular realm where scientists just keep holding false beliefs, maybe citing them, maybe sharing them to each other. Um, but usually they picked up those beliefs in a context where they were looking at a paper, you know, evidence for them supposedly shared by a trusted expert or community member. And so um, what's happened is that they just later don't realize that person was in fact wrong or maybe a fraud in some cases. It shows the importance of tools like um, like Cite. When you when you put uh, a bunch of papers in there, it can tell you this paper's been retracted. Or Zotero has a plugin as well, where it'll it'll scan through your library and it'll go, "This paper has been retracted." So it's a small step. I did not realize that those existed. I have thought that we should have for every journal, you know, when a paper gets published, part of the editing process should be using some kind of centralized database to just check. Have any of these citations been retracted? And if so, make sure the authors know and are handling that in a responsible way. I mean, I also think that a lot of um, sort of centralized bodies like search engines have not done a great job of flagging when papers are retracted. A lot of archives don't either. They'll maybe put one little word <laughs> withdrawn. Yep. Instead, it should be kind of splashed against across the whole yep. thing, you know, a red retracted banner. There, there was a fuss about this a couple of years ago um, and people uh, who are adjacent to the work I was doing at the time were very cranky about you change the title of the article. So it says retracted all caps colon the title of the article. Um, take, take the proofs and watermark retracted over each individual page so you can't actually look at it. Um, make sure the actual retraction notice is linked from the article. And a lot of journals have done all of those. And it doesn't seem to have made a particularly substantial difference. And I think the reason for that is because if it's in someone's head and you Google it, if you end up with a copy of the original manuscript in four, six, eight different places, you open the one that's most available, and the one that's most available is an archive copy from somewhere. It's not a current copy at all, and it goes into it goes into the kind of collective consciousness in a way where you can't pull it back out. Um, it still has a DOI. The DOI doesn't get cancelled. There's nothing that is uh, uh, about how the, the information is recorded on a kind of a metastructural level. That doesn't change. We don't, we don't cancel it. Um, and obviously you can't update a DOI. You just make another one with a notice that says that that one doesn't exist anymore, but they're not functionally connected. Um, and the last paper was probably earlier this year that was on, do people continue to cite them says exactly the same thing as all the others, which is still yes. Uh, Depressing. I think, um, that's actually one strength of specialist journals. Um, I reviewed a paper last year and, um, the authors had cited a paper, which during the review process had gotten retracted, and all three reviewers um, had written, hey, you know this paper was retracted, and every single reviewer caught it because it was such a small field. And the author was like, yeah, this, and all, all the reviewers were like, we know this was retracted after you submitted it, but hey, it's retracted now. 
don't cite it. And the fact that it was such a specialized journal, every single reviewer knew, knew about it, then that then then it was all sorted. So um, that's that that's one real strength of those specialized journals. Um, but yeah, th- th- those tools which notify you of papers being that, that have been retracted, um, and technology, it, it doesn't. It's not that hard <laughs> to to actually put these DOIs in these um, in in Zotero or in Site.ai to put the DOIs in there and and get those notices. And um, yeah, and I, I also think it speaks to this idea of um, like people. It's you know you you, you want to Google something and and there's like you, know, you get to page you you go to page four in order to find something that that's consistent with your beliefs. It's the same sort of thing with with citations in that like and people go to Google Scholar they're they're looking for a citation and they'll find it um and and, and they'll get it even if it's retracted and the only thing that's going to stop it is like you said James having that big bold caps retracted colon name of the study um but uh, it doesn't seem to be making a difference well there's also there's something that happens sometimes where science becomes more like social media when it shouldn't be. So it's kind of a norm that if you're a scientist and you're going to cite a paper, you ought to go to the proper source and read the paper. You know, you ought to go to the journal or the book and read it there and then cite it. But there's all this evidence showing that people don't do that. They find the citation in someone else's paper. They copy out the citation and copy out the claim. And part of the evidence showing this is, I mean, I think there was a recent case where a ton of people cited a fake paper. It was like an example meant to show how to format your bibliography. Yeah, I tweeted that. Yeah, that was that was. <laughs> yeah, so it was like nobody was going and actually checking the original source. So this process of just learning directly from other people, and then they learn, and then they can pass it on, and then you can pass it on, and more and more people can kind of learn directly from each other. It's you know the kind of game of telephone process. Ideally, shouldn't be happening with paper citations. And then it's the fact that it is that in part contributes to these failures of retraction. It's kind of like Twitter now. now that- There's a, a great study. Oh, God, Kaylin, you just reminded me of something. Maybe you know what this is. This is one of those things that I read and then could never find again. Um, the persistence of typos going between uh, going between papers over time because people are copying and pasting. Um People, people are copying and pasting the the information about the, the previously cited paper. Yeah, in the um, citation, right? The actual citation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you you know you leave an author off, or you you put a dot somewhere, um, and and like the the chains of these over time because people are just going, oh that old chestnut. They haven't read it, um, and their 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 contact with it is is hoovering the information necessary to find it, never noticing that the information is wrong. Um, oh, if anyone who's listening to this is uh, help, help me out because I read this one years ago and I, I really want to read it again at some point and I can't find it. I can't remember who wrote it. Yeah, I, I, I can't help you. I also remember uh, reading this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I usually harass Dan for these and he knows, but even Dan's no looking idea. more confused than usual. <laughs> yeah. Oh, none out of three. Aren't we great? <laughs> one of my favorite examples of typos um, was one of my co-authors. One of his most cited papers, um, he, he didn't check the proofs and they misspelled his name, <laughs> which, is, which is which is kind of the first thing that um, that you check. And what had happened was is that some people know his real name and have cited the paper using his real name, and others have used what the actual journal has. So it, it actually means that his citations are split between these two different sets of citations <laughs> because. Because he didn't check the spelling of his own name, so yes, check check your proofs. That's the uh, that's the moral moral of the story there. Now, 
Um, I, I want to get back to to this idea, the general idea of philosophy of science. If somebody wanted to get into this, where should one begin? Is it is there certain authors that people should be looking at? Um, how does someone sort of start getting into this who, who are interested? Oh boy, okay. Um, how do people get into my whole field? Where, 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 where's a good place to start? The classic place is to read Kuhn. That's where most people start philosophy of science. And it's still actually a sort of incredibly relevant um, book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. So that's a great kind of intro to philosophy of science. It's also really well written. Uh, then there's just you know tons of other good stuff of many different flavors. So I mentioned some of the kind of things that people work on earlier. Some people do theoretical work that's very continuous with the sciences. So for example, I will sometimes publish in social science journals instead of philosophy journals and, you know, the stuff kind of on the borderline. Um, and then people do more stuff that's meta-scientific about the workings of science. Of that, I think that one of the first things everyone should read looking into philosophy of science is work in feminist philosophy of science. So basically work looking at how people's cultural context, their cultural beliefs, all the biases that we all have influence the way we do science. I mean, I think that is so illuminating and incredibly important to understand. And it's not just about kind of negative biases like, you know, racism or sexism, though sometimes it's about that. But it's also just about, you know, these basic cultural beliefs that we'll all hold, we don't realize we're holding and will deeply shape the way we choose to do science, the way we pick problems to work on, the way we see data, the way we will operationalize some measurement, the way we choose to measure this data, um, the inferences we draw from the data, you know, it's sort of every stage of science, this stuff works in. I think that stuff is an, another really good place to start. Yeah, no, because it's something I've been getting in interested in myself. Um, and you, you sort of mentioned it at the beginning, this idea that philosophy of science matters for your research questions. Um, and the way that we actually, as well as the way that we do statistical inference. And, uh, yeah, so I've, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of reading, trying to, trying to figure this out and, and get a better understanding. I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating and it's good to see, um, that, uh, a number of other people, it seems when you're actually looking at Twitter, um, um, uh, are getting more and more interested in these things. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, for specific readings, I really recommend the work of Helen Longino as sort of, a few like classic books, um, like science as social knowledge that are really great. We'll have to, uh, link, link to those in the show notes. And what's next for your research wise? Like what's, what's got you really excited at the moment? Well, I'm doing a couple little things. I'm doing my first ever psychology style study right now. Um, working with some psychologists, social psychologists here at UC Irvine. We're interested in why people judge certain scenarios to be more or less risky regarding COVID-19 exposure. And in particular, we want to know if you think someone's doing something that's morally right or that's really important, does that make you judge it to be less risky? And part of the reason we were asking that is, you know, various people kept commenting on these like risk lists that would say the beach was riskier than going to the library. And objectively, that's just wrong because we know being outdoors versus indoors is a huge difference. 
But it seemed like what people were really responding to is like, well, going to the library is very virtuous and you ought to go to the library. Whereas the beach is very frivolous and you shouldn't be going to the beach. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, um, are our risk judgments influenced by all these other kinds of judgments? Very different kind oh. of work. <laughs> yeah, what a what a what a good question. It's like the 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 moral nature of the beach somehow detracts from the fact that it is legitimately outside and the breeze blows, <laughs> which is about as good as you could possibly get. Yeah, it's like somehow oh, in a pandemic you shouldn't be drinking a margarita and sunning because we all should be you know, sad and indoors. <laughs> that 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 is the least legitimate opinion I have ever heard. Is is there could there possibly be a better time than uh, lying around and drinking tequila based cocktails? I well, I was also that. with Halloween here in my neighborhood. People were very anti Halloween, and I was like, you almost can't set up a holiday that would be a safer COVID holiday. You know, nobody has to come close to each other or touch each other. It's all outdoors. So I, again, thought that might be responsive more to, like, moral feelings about should we really be having so much fun? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. My, uh, our, our, our young neighbors downstairs, who are the nicest people in the whole world, they drive me absolutely crazy, um, set, set up a little board and, and pinned little candy bags to it for the kids who are coming around the neighborhood. Um and then no one came round. I come out the next morning. There's a board with all candy pinned. <laughs> Dan, do they have Halloween in Norway? Yeah, it's getting more and more popular. Um, it's kind mm. of weird because sometimes it can be really cold, and sometimes it might snow. So that that brings a bit of bit of extra. <laughs> you can't really you can't really dress up when you're wearing a big parka. Um, but yeah, it's it's getting more popular, um, and people are getting getting quite into it. Um, lo- local kids sort of uh, love it, and um, yeah, no, it's getting. I would say it's more popular here than it is in Australia. Yep, it's not well received in Australia. Not because people are averse to chocolate; it's perceived to be uh, American in a, in a in a manner that is unbecoming, um, which is crazy because you get free chocolate and you get to dress as a ghoul. So you know, it's yeah. objectively <laughs> one of the best oh, holidays, well. and I think everyone should adopt it. Even if our country is distasteful, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which is, uh, I mean, come on, you get to put, I get to put skeletons in the yard, and every Snickers bar that you don't take, I get to keep. I mean, talk about two out of two. I can't, I can't my first pumpkin ever. That was fun. Ah, uh, yeah, we did that for a few years when we moved to America, and they were all unspeakably rude, and we <laughs> we never thought we'd put them outside because they'd be cops. Well, we're going to wrap up for this episode. Kaylin O'Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to add links to the books and the papers that you mentioned uh, as well as to, to your website and uh, and your Twitter handle as well. Uh, so, yeah. We should, thank- Dan, yes. Dan, Dan, we should give away a copy of the book. Let's do it. We're going to give away okay. a copy of the book. Um, we're going to run a, 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 we're gonna run a competition on Twitter and give away um, a copy of, um, of Kaylin's book of the uh, missing There you go. Misinformation age. There you go. Competition. Yeah. Bam. Oh yeah. But that's that's why we have that's why we have Patreons and partners and stuff, Dan. We do actually have to spend the money on something. You can't just all go on bucket hats. It's gone, it's gone. It's gone, it's gone back to the fans. Of course it is. That's what it's for. 
That's the only reason we have it in the first place. We can give it back to people. Yeah, take that, commerce. I have <laughs> defeated you. Oh, thank you, Kaylin. It's been a, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. <laughs>